right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time for that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. What's going on? Happy Monday. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Anything happened this weekend? Anything? Anything of note? How about the power outage game? For KU football. Do we call it that? Do we call it the power outage game? Or do we call it the dollar signs game part two? Dollar signs. So, I don't know. If Kansas wins that game and that doesn't happen, it's for sure the power outage game. I wonder, like, should they honestly have a power outage at different points? You know, throughout the game. It's a home field advantage. You should be able to do to your home field advantage whatever you want. You know, if you play in a dome and you're playing a passing offense that week and, you know, you want to crank up the indoor fan to make it have 30-mile-per-hour winds inside, home field advantage. You want to turn the temperatures up to 80 degrees? You know, or I guess what the the Spurs did against the Heat in the the finals, where the air conditioning went off. Home field advantage, more power to you. It's your home. You do with it what you want. So KU should be able to turn off the power whenever they want. They said on the broadcast. I don't know if this was true. They said on the broadcast that KU was operating at, at battery power at one point in Oklahoma. They weren't sure. They didn't say they're not for sure. They just said. We're not sure if Oklahoma has communication with the headsets through the press box. That would be a big advantage if that was the case. But it does end up being maybe more of the dollar signs part two game. If you've never heard the full Mangino quote, here it is. You know what this is all about, don't you? That's right. BCS. That's what made a difference today in the game. That's what made a difference in the call in front of their bench. Dollar signs. Now, and I'm not going to be pushed around or this university pushed around because we're not the big spenders. We're not the big BCS team in the league. I'll say this. If Lance Leipold wants to at his press conference tomorrow say the phrase dollar signs and he gets fined for it, I think we could very easily crowdsource with KU fans and alumni and donors to pay for the fine, right? I I just wanted to hear him say it. Maybe I'll just ask a question like, I don't know, this would, feels like not very like prevalent and I, I would feel dumb asking this question, taking away from actual good questions from good journalists on the KU beat, but I might just like tell it's like, hey, can you just say the two words dollar signs and then we just have that sound bite for you on the radio show afterwards uh, I I don't know I, I go back and forth with how much you know officiating matters and 
I try not to fall into the trap of, well, you only won or lost because of this, because there are so many other things that occur throughout a game. And it's hard when it's the key play of a game, right? And it's hard for, like, in the situation of, like, Rams Saints when that pass interference happened, like, it's really hard to distance yourself from that and say, yeah, they for sure win without it. But there's always other chances to win the game. Certainly, though, KU feels slighted in that game, a game that you almost beat Oklahoma. So encouraging from that standpoint that you almost take down the Sooners. You almost get a top five upset. A couple calls don't go your way. You have the holding call in the first half that prevents a touchdown. You have that call in the fourth quarter where Oklahoma hands it off to the running back, Kennedy Brooks, gets stopped at the line of scrimmage, gets pushed back, and forward progress is not given. And then once he gets approached by Caleb Williams, he takes the ball away. This is after the running back already had uh, crossed the line of scrimmage, at least with parts of his body, but I believe the whole part of his body has to cross. So I guess if that didn't happen, then by the nature of the rule, the handoff would be okay. Uh, The bigger question is if forward progress should have been stopped. Terry McCauley, who does the rule analytics or whatnot on the broadcast for Sunday Night Football, former veteran NFL referee, he, he actually saw this video and, and tweeted about it on Saturday. He said the runner was held and driven back at least two yards prior to losing control of the ball. It should have been declared dead and short of the line to gain. That is not reviewable. The next issue is whether this is a handoff or a fumble. He says fumble and handing the ball are defined below. While not in, and he sent a picture of it. While not entirely clear, the rule seems to infer that handing is an intentional act by a player in possession. If so, that would make this a fourth down fumble, which could not be advanced as the ball was taken away, not handed. So probably could have been called dead for that. Probably could have been issued as a fumble and and brought back. So from that standpoint, very unfortunate for KU. And yes, there was a call earlier in the game where KU on a quarterback sneak converts because they're allowed to kind of keep inching forward and, and move forward and eventually get the first down instead of it being called dead for forward progress. But the difference was, and Terry McCauley mentioned this as well, there's a difference there because KU on the quarterback sneak was standing still and or slightly inching forward. Whereas with Oklahoma, he was going backwards, which is where the forward progress would apply. So unfortunate for KU. Dollar signs. Now that said, moving on from that portion of the game, the power outage and the dollar signs part two, just such an impressive output from KU football. I mean, for a lot of that game, Oklahoma was the team not playing sound football. KU was the team playing sound football. Just forget about the athletes, just the discipline, the the penalties that kept coming for Oklahoma versus the lack of penalties for KU outside of the one bad penalty they had on the, uh, I forget if it was second and long, I, I think it was second and like 30-something, and you get the... Uh, Face mask call could have been, you know, targeting. Outside of that, you were really the more disciplined team. And bar none, that was KU's best tackling game of the year. That was just a solid performance by KU. And I say that it was bar none KU's best tackling game of the year. One of the plays that's going to stick in everyone's mind the most is the fourth down converted by OU where you had three guys to tackle Caleb Williams on the edge. Looks like you had strung him out perfectly and we're going to get a fourth down stop. 
and then he just cut inside. Great play by him, but one that you would have liked to make the tackle there, and he goes for a touchdown. So that will stick in people's minds. But outside of that, a good tackling game for KU. I mean, there were lots of times, too, in the first half where Kennedy Brooks got through an initial hole at the line of scrimmage, and he gets to the second level six, seven yards down the field, and Kenny Logan, who, happy birthday, I guess, Kenny Logan, by the way, made like a a tackle that prevents it from spurring into a 20-plus yard play. So they had some big tackles from that regard. But how could that game not be deemed a rousing success overall? I mean, that was the exact performance and plenty more beyond that of what you were hoping for from Jason Bean. Devin Neal and the offensive line continue to get better. And the offense overall was pleasing to watch in that game. Jason Bean specifically, you're coming off your maybe shakiest game of the year against Texas Tech. And the quarterback position finally becomes kind of a talking point of, uh uh-oh, what's going on there? And you bounce back with one of your best, maybe your best performances of the season against Oklahoma. And coming through in the clutch as well, you lead the touchdown drive when you have to have a score on that drive after Oklahoma just went up 28 to 17. You have to go get six, or you have to at least get three. You have to make it a one possession game again. And you go down, you get a touchdown. He was running the ball well. Really big game for Jason Bean and a nice sign moving forward because we don't want to get back into the conversation of what is KU doing at the quarterback position. And that was a great game from Jason Bean. Devin Neal won Big 12 co-newcomer of the week this week. Offensive line, like I said, continues to get better. Just one sack allowed, and it was at the end of the game after it was already 35-23. You have nine sacks to Oklahoma last year. How about the game from Kwame Lasseter? He was fantastic. Uh, the defense, still not great for KU. I know at the end of the day, like, you would walk away and say, yeah, I'm, if you told me coming in, KU was only going to go up 35 to Oklahoma. I'd be all about it, and you would. But it's it's not like a – I hesitate to say real 35 because Oklahoma had so few possessions and plays compared to normal. It's not that they were just demolished by the KU defense. It's just if you have less possessions, you have less chances to score, but they were ultra-efficient on their possessions in the second half. But the first half, you played a great game defensively and they only had a few possessions in the first half but you didn't give up any points on them and heck even I mean success for the KU athletic department right with opening up the gates for everyone that was a really cool deed done by the KU athletic department you kept it close with a top five team you re-engaged the fan base this season after a couple bad performances I think you gave yourself a lot of hope moving forward No other way to view it than a rousing success. Now, it's tough because while it's at the end of the day, like the summation of this all is that, like I said, it's a success and it's positives. It's also difficult to discuss that game without not just the officiating calls, not just the uh, blackout, basically, but also without discussing some of the missed opportunities for KU. And in the end, you fall short 
and a big reason why were some missed opportunities. There were times in the first half where you weren't aggressive enough. You had some opportunities there to add some more. And there was, you know, whether you're running the ball on second and 10 or not going for the sticks on third down and long. The one that that sticks out the most to me is you uh, got the ball around your own 30-35 with 45 seconds, 55 seconds to go in the first half. You're up 10-0 at that point. And there was literally a possession right before that where you were comfortable kicking a 57-yard field goal. And that was, I guess if we were to rewind, that 57-yard field goal was after you ran it on second and 10 and then had kind of a conservative third down play, I believe. And so not only do you not go for it on fourth down or at the very least just punt them to pin them deep at that point, you kick a 57-yard field goal, which for a field goal unit that hasn't been ultra-reliable didn't make a ton of sense, but if you're going to be under the notion that we're going to trust our kicker to, to make this long of a field goal, with the alternative being if he misses it, they get great field position, why would you not, at the very least, at the end of the first half, try to get a long field goal? Because then the negative side of that, of giving up good field position, no longer applies if you're kicking on the very last play of the first half. So I didn't understand that. They just ran the ball twice and ran out the clock instead of being aggressive and trying to get a field goal before half to extend it to 13 nothing instead of 10 nothing. That was a missed opportunity. Uh, not getting the fumble in the third quarter. That's not really a missed opportunity in, in terms of something you can always control, but definitely a missed opportunity in that you wish that would have gone your way, and sometimes fumbling is just kind of luck. The missed opportunity of not tackling Caleb Williams on that first fourth down where you had three defenders out there and nobody could bring him down. And then the missed opportunities caused by refs. The the holding call in, in the second drive was as big as anything because you ended up having to settle for a field goal instead of getting a touchdown and then the fourth down play. So missed opportunities, and that's unfortunate. But the first step to a rebuild is being competitive. If you do it against the top team in the conference and a top five team in the country, that's only the cherry on top, which it was. And while all this is true and and you have all those missed opportunities that I feel like you have to bring up, at least in discussion of the game, it still is impossible to come away from that game while grading KU on a curve on top of that to where they're at as a program and who you're facing there, a top five team. Though do we actually believe Oklahoma's top five team now? I don't know, but they're still one of the better teams in the country. And just so encouraging with the team's performance and how well they played. Because the biggest things for me, it shows, one, the buy-in is real and still continuing. Not necessarily that that had been a question before, but, you know, every time you take a decisive blow, every time you feel like you're going in the right direction and then you get a big setback. You lose uh, the Iowa State by 50 points. You give up 28 in the first quarter. You lose to Texas Tech in a game you thought you would be competitive in and you're never in it. You fall behind 41 nothing. You wonder what the buy-in is going to be. Is it going to be the same as it was in week one? 
No questions about that after the Oklahoma game because that's still continuing. Number two, you get a possible glimpse into the future of what an ideal Lance Leipold team that's fighting and playing hard could look like against better tier opponents. Number three, it makes you feel like you're actually enjoying and spending as a fan your Saturday, all those hours you put into getting out to the game, coming to the game, tailgating, being at the game, the money and time you spend, you feel like in a game like that, it was worth every penny. And number four, it gives you hope for the rest of the season and the future of this program. And for all those reasons, Saturday, while still being a loss with some missed chances that you would have liked to capitalize on and some things that didn't go your way. Dollar signs. It was the biggest resounding success thus far of the Lance Leipold era and one that KU, you hope, is going to build upon moving forward because that's been a question in the past, but certainly a bright spot for KU football over the weekend. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017. At 1320 KLWN. David Lawrence joins us in 20 minutes to talk more KU football. David Lesky will join us in the middle of the 4 o'clock hour here on RCST. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact Johnson at GPM. Now.com. That's D Johnson at GPMnow.com. Well, while it was a fun weekend, if you were a KU football fan, which is always funny, you know, because KU lost, but given where the program is and what your expectations were in that game, 38 and a half point underdogs, having a real chance to win that game, and if some things go your way, you do win that game. It was just a fun game to watch. That was not the case at all for the Kansas City Chiefs. The very opposite of fun in that game. And it almost makes you long for the days where the Chiefs were losing excruciating games to the Chargers and the Ravens. That was tough. That feels like rock bottom for this team. Um, Because yesterday was... Pretty clear showing that the Chiefs' issues are a lot more than just the defense, while the defense still is a gigantic issue. Because the hope in in the Washington game was that you give up 13 points, and it's not just that. You go 21 unanswered in the second half. You shut them out in the second half. You know, was that halftime in the Washington game, was that the turning point for the team that we were going to look back on and say, you know, that was the last straw. The the bad Patrick Mahomes interception and the wide-open Ricky Seals touchdown, those were the last straws. They finally figured it out. Well, yeah, that, that was a sham. There's not the case here. And what's unfortunate about this, this isn't just one of those blowouts where it feels like, like the Packers lost to the Saints. They got destroyed in week one, and since then the Packers have won every game, and they're one of the best teams in football. Um a couple years ago, I think the Packers got crushed by the Chargers, and they ended up making the NFC Championship game. Uh, the Patriots got crushed by the Chiefs on Monday Night Football, 
handful of years back, I think that was 2014, ended up going to the Super Bowl. So it has happened many a times in the NFL where this isn't college where it's like you got blown out because you were just a worse team. It's just sometimes things happen. But this doesn't feel like that. This doesn't feel like that because those were kind of one-offs. And we only know it to be a one-off based on how you bounce back from that. So I guess from that standpoint, it's possible. But there is history this season leading up to that that makes you think, no, that's that's not a one-off. This Chiefs team has kind of been playing with fire. They haven't been that good anyway. Something like this was bound to happen. You had so many issues in that game. We can start with the defense. It's still terrible. And the effort on the field is absolutely heinous to go with it. I mean, you're seeing clips on social media of runs up the middle where Chris Jones, who's supposed to be one of the leaders on the defense, one of the highest paid guys in the team, is just, he's not even moving in front of the ball carrier. He's just throwing his arms to the side like a turnstile and not really trying to wrap up. Mike Hughes, the corner, coming in and just making a business decision and just pulling up and not hitting Derrick Henry. Things like that going on. You see Frank Clark at the end of the game when the Chiefs are down 27-3 to on the sideline just laughing, having a good time. And, you know, I, I never know what to think of that stuff because, you know, what do you want him to do? Be sad forever? But also, it's literally still the game going on. You have played like crap, haven't lived up, lived up to the contract that you signed and add to it that you were getting crushed. And you just have so much money tied up into that defensive line on this defense, which creates so many issues because you have the second highest paid, I believe, defensive line in the league. Your defensive line is making so much money that you need them to be a really good unit because with the salary cap, you basically have to divvy up your priorities to where you say okay we're going to make the defensive line the most important thing here and that's going to allow us to if we have more average players in the linebacker unit and then the secondary it's going to make up for it we're going to get pressure that's going to allow our corners to have better coverage because they won't have to cover as long but when that's not happening now you leave everything else out to dry you leave it to a point where now these average or replacement level players at the linebacker core and in the secondary, all of a sudden they look like what they are because you don't have that strength to help them out. And Scott Chasen pointed this out to me that Frank Clark is only making $7 million less than the entire Rams defensive line. Think about that for a second. The Rams defense has been really good. The Rams defensive line has been really good. And the most important factor in that is they have Aaron Donald, who has been one of the greatest defensive players over the last, I don't know, of all time, honestly, but what he's put together over the last five years is good of a stretch as you can get in the history of defensive football. I mean, you're talking about the athletic release, like their top 100 players of all time. He's already like a top 30 player, right? And he still has years in front of him. Um, so that's going to help, right? But even if your idea is that well, of course, we have one guy to buoy it. Like, the Chiefs are supposed to have that with Chris Jones and Frank Clark, and they don't. 
and Clark alone, not counting the other Chiefs defensive linemen, which you invested in Jaron Reed, not long-term, but you did invest in him. You invested long-term and a lot of money in Chris Jones. You invested draft picks in guys like Derek Noddy, who are fine players, but they're two-down players, not a pass rusher. And the entire Rams defensive line, which outside of Aaron Donald still is solid, it's good, buoyed up by Aaron Donald, is making only $7 million more than Frank Clark. And that has helped lead to a fact that, this was pointed out by Josh Briscoe yesterday, the Chiefs have the second highest cap hit among defensive players. So you add up all the salaries of all the Chiefs defensive players, they have the second most money invested into their defense in the NFL. Yet it is this bad. They have the worst defense in the NFL with the second highest paid into it. What does that tell you? They're either not being used right, they either have no motivation, they don't care, or the GM is doing a poor job. And maybe it's a combination of all three. But again, yesterday was more so than the defense because the defense we know is terrible, and it continued to do that. Yesterday was probably the first time we couldn't just point your finger at one side of the ball like we've kind of done all season. I mean, we've we've pointed the fact to, you know, they've had turnover issues all season long, and, and that needs to get fixed and that little things here or there. But it hasn't been to the same extent of the defense. And now it's worrisome because it does feel like You've been spending all this time trying to plug one hole in a sinking boat, which would be the defense. And while you've been working on this, trying to repair it, all of a sudden there's three other holes that have opened up in the boat. Turnovers. Not a fluke. Not a, you know, can this team correct it anymore? At some point, it just becomes part of your identity. If you're doing it every week, it doesn't become any more, well, can they fix it? It becomes... That is just part of what they do. They're turning it over at an alarming rate. They continue to make dumb decisions. Patrick Mahomes not sliding there. The interception was a forced ball by Mahomes and then gets tipped up in the air. The McCole Hardman just wants to fumble every game, apparently. And Mahomes is really pressing. I mean, you can see it. With as bad as the defense is, it's turning Mahomes into a guy who he feels like he has the weight of the the world on his shoulders. You don't necessarily blame him, but you just need him to not try to do as much. And it doesn't help the offensive line as much as you've invested in it. Still has not been very good. You got worked by the Titans in that game. They blitzed one time, one time the entire game in the snaps that Mahomes was in there. It was a four-man pass rush the rest of the time, and they worked over the defensive line. And part of it is on Patrick Mahomes because there are times when he escapes the pocket too quickly and other teams' defensive ends are starting to realize he does that and are adjusting to it and making it harder on the Chiefs' offensive tackles. And there are times when Patrick Mahomes isn't stepping into the pocket. And there are times when the Chiefs probably should do a better job of hitting the quick, short passing game. But they're not doing it. And Mahomes is pressing. Mahomes is struggling. It's everybody's fault right now. And I I keep waiting for this team to adjust, like specifically on the offensive side of the ball. You continue to play teams that are doing what the Titans did. We're only going to rush four. We're going to play two deep safeties. Everybody else is going to be pressed man-to-man. How many times has that happened against the Chiefs now? And 
How many times does it feel like they haven't had an answer? Too many. You would think you would get that figured out. Who is that on? I don't know. Is that on Andy Reid? Is it on Eric Bieniemy? Is it on Patrick Mahomes? But it just feels like, like, if you did that against Tom Brady every play, Tom Brady is just going to say, okay, I'll take a five-yard slant route every single play, and we'll do it 10 times down the field till we get a touchdown. I'm totally content doing that. The Chiefs' offense hasn't been patient enough to do that, and until they make that evolution, teams are going to continue to do this, and they're not going to have as much success offensively, which when you add in the bad, the terrible defense, leads into what this is, which is a bad football team. It's a, it's a team that's not a real contender for the playoffs because you're 3-4, and four, you're 1-4 and four against teams with winning records, but realistically, the top contenders in the AFC right now, you'd point out the Ravens, the Chargers, the Bengals, the Bills and the Titans. And guess what? You still play the Bengals. You still play the Chargers again. Both of those on the road. But you've lost to all the other ones. You're 0-4 in those games. This is not a real contender. There are so many issues going on with this team. I don't know if it's locker room. I don't know if it's a lack of adjustment. I don't know if it's an Andy Reid thing. But this is not the football team that a lot of people were thinking this was going to be before the season. And they kind of had another chance to feel like you were getting back into the swing of things against the Titans, and it went completely off the rails. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. David Lawrence joins us next. Let's reminisce more on that KU football game. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Joined now by David Lawrence, who uh, got to call an exciting game on Saturday against Oklahoma. I, I know it didn't end up the right way for KU. Uh, what point in that game did you start to think like, oh my gosh, we might actually beat Oklahoma? <laughs> Certainly, uh, when we answered their opening drive for a score in the second half, you know, the fact that we came out ready to play in the second half, not a surprise that Oklahoma scored, but the way that we answered and, uh, you know, we scored later, which, you know, the way that we scored on our last touchdown leads us all to believe, and granted, we are somewhat of of a hometown uh, fan, should we have gotten the ball at the, what, the OU 45 like we should have when forward progress stopped, the whistles should be blowing, then we would have marched down for a score. I mean, I, I, I mean, don't we feel that way? I mean, mm-hmm. just, just by the way that uh, Kwame Lasseter and Jason Dean were hooking up, and and how far that corner was playing off Lasseter, um, and then Luke Grimm getting into the picture with his crossing route. I, uh, I feel pretty sure that uh, we would have. Of course, we don't know that, and you know, there's always going to be would-haves and could-haves when you lose a game, but uh, I think those are strong possibilities, but no doubt, you know, and, and I felt great about the overall picture, um, you know, into this year and, and knew that this year you couldn't count on anything because you had, uh, you know, you were dealt with a limited deck of cards and so little time to work with them, but uh, just pleased and amazed at uh, how fast these guys are adhering to the culture that Lance Leipold has brought over. 
Well, I thought that was a pretty remarkable turnaround um, from where you were just a week prior against Texas Tech, which in my eyes, I thought the Texas Tech game was kind of the biggest letdown of the year because you're coming off a bye against a team that uh, you're deeming to be, you know, one of the bottom couple teams in the Big 12 with you, and you were never really in that game. So to come back from that to this, I, I don't think there's any other way of looking at it in terms of a success, even though you didn't win the game. And I don't think there's any other way of looking at it as proof of concept of what the Lance Leipold era could look like down the road. Now, who knows how consistent this will be this specific year. Like you said, you don't have the full deck, so to speak. But I think you at least saw a glimpse into the future of what ideally it would look like, and that's fighting hard and being competitive with some of the top teams. And I guess the next step from here is can you kind of repeat that and do that against future opponents down the rest of the way? But at the very least, you had to see the buy-in from the players, especially after a tough loss like Texas Tech, and I think you got that on Saturday. Yeah, and Derek, if you watch tape of the previous games, you can see buy-in. I mean, the previous game, and, and certainly understand the feelings of, of fans that felt let down when um, you know we went against a team that most all of us felt we had a shot at. But you know, the quarterback play. You know, I mean, Jason had a rough game and. Did he come out on fire and got him involved in, in rushing uh, and using his legs and taking some hits? And I think that just makes him feel comfortable overall. But he was, uh, I mean, people talk about Caleb Williams all he want. Jason Bean, I think, outplayed him. Other, other than Caleb had a couple of crazy plays on fourth down. Uh, one of them shouldn't be allowed. The other one was just... Uh, you know, on that little quarterback draw that he ran, where he ran right through a couple of our tacklers, it was an example of just uh, how talented he is. So, I'm not, I'm not trying to take away from Caleb Williams. I'm just saying that Jason Bean played phenomenal football, and uh, he, along with his uh, partners out there, gave us an opportunity to win. Yeah, those those two fourth downs are the ones that stick out. The one, like you said, which. I, I wish we would have got a, a dollar signs reference from Lance Leipold in the post game afterwards for that one. And then, yeah, the one where you could have had him wrapped up. I think there were three guys there and he just had that great cut and they were unable to get him and he, he scampered in for the touchdown. But I, I think that what you mentioned with Jason Bean, how well he played was, I don't know, maybe the other biggest piece of importance for that game for me, besides just the overall being able to be competitive with Oklahoma, because the same thing I mentioned with Texas Tech, like that was a tough game for Jason Bean. And um, I, I think that was really the first time that maybe there were questions at, at what's going on at the quarterback position, because up until that point, yes, there were down moments and some inconsistencies, but unlike previous years, the quarterback position didn't really feel like a conversation. Like it didn't feel like it was, oh, who's going to be the quarterback this week? It was just, we just know it's going to be Jason Bean. And that was kind of refreshing until that Texas Tech game. And not that that really became in question because that was never the case with Lance Leipold, but it became more of a conversation about, oh, no, what's happening at the quarterback position. And I think you saw the nice bounce back with Oklahoma that you once again feel confident with Jason Bean moving forward. And that is one of the most important things to me that can happen the rest of the year. Having more moments like that from Jason Bean where we head into the offseason not having to have this conversation again about, oh, could it be this guy, this guy, or this guy? We just go into the offseason and go, no, barring something weird happening, like, it is that guy. No question about that. And, you know, 
we've got to throw my guys up front along with that. As you know, uh, I tweet about as often as uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, <laughs> but, but I had to include one, uh, you know, directed towards our offensive line coach, Scott Fuchs. He, uh, I mean, I was there. I'm sure you watched the game last year in Oklahoma. I mean, what happened to Jalen Daniels and what was done to our offensive line would be illegal in about half the states in the country. <laughs> I mean, record number of sacks. It was just a mauling. And uh, we went against the same guys up front. It was the same guys. And you didn't even hear their names. I mean, they got a, you know, I called it a garbage sack at the end of the game. Um, that was their first and only sack, and that was because Jason was looking downfield into that prevent defense and not really even looking at um, the outside linebacker that came in. So uh, the, the job that Fuchs has done, and granted he got a couple of new pieces, but those other pieces are still there, and he had you know less days to get that ready, and that's why. Quite frankly, you didn't see the improvement on the offensive line in the South Dakota game. And I've, and that, that was a little bit of a downer. But if you look back at it, well, he didn't have spring ball with them. And the whole new concept of outside zone is, is really a, a different thing, different skill set for these offensive linemen to grasp. So uh, I mean, all the positions have improved, all of them across the board. Uh, outside of the fact we've got to do a better job of punting the football, um, in the future, because uh, that's going to pull us down. We didn't have to punt very much against Oklahoma. How many times do we say that? But uh, I, mean, I see everything else improving, and it's great to see across the board. The buy-in is obviously there, but uh, a lot of fun for for everybody involved, feeling like, yes, we have a great chance to beat Oklahoma. And had the uh, fourth down play been called, what we feel should have been a Whistle blown to mark uh, the stoppage of of forward progress, and as they were going backwards, then uh, I, I think we would have scored and had an opportunity to win the game on Saturday. We're talking with David Lawrence here. Are you guys allowed to drop dollar sign references? I know if Lance Lightbolt does it, he gets fined. Can you do one for me? <laughs> well, I can. I can tell you that I was there because uh, I was interviewing Coach Mangino at the time. And I came in there, and Coach Mangino is, uh, you know, at times he was like uh, wrestling with a grizzly after a game. I mean, he, he's a competitive dude, you know, and that's wh- and that's why he was so successful. And uh, and I looked at him after that game, and I and he gave me the, the the hand signal to bring it on. You know, in other words, I want you to ask it. Don't worry, ask the question. So I threw it out to him, kind of a big, uh, big snowball, and he took it. And then that's when he made that dollar sign quote. So that was the beginning of our postgame interview with Mark Mangino. Uh, you, you know, um, I don't know if I believe in that theory. I will say this, okay, in fairness to the officials, if you go back, the first half, we did a quarterback sneak, and forward progress was uh, not blown probably when it should have been then. In other words, uh, it, Bean was stopped for a couple of counts, and normally you would have that whistle. And then I think Devin Neal helped get him established and pushing from behind uh, 
to fall forward for the first down. So maybe they're calling that a little bit different. You can't argue that that play was anywhere near as significant as the one that happened at the end of the game when it wasn't only a forward progress stopped, it was a movement backwards. And uh, that's why I think that was uh, even greater oversight that the whistle should have been blown. Yeah, I actually saw uh, Terry McCauley, who uh, former official in the NFL and does rules expert stuff on the broadcasts for, I think, NBC, talked about this afterwards, the fact that he thought the Jason Bean one, that one was okay because it was, at the very least, it was like you were kind of in, in the middle. Like, you weren't going backwards. If anything, you were inching forward, whereas the Oklahoma one, he was going backwards, so he said it should have been called and I'm not a huge, you know, blame the refs for everything that happens because there's always moments where you can say, well, if the fourth down before you tackle him instead of letting him get by three guys, then then who knows there. But it was obviously a very, very big call and very tough. And obviously when it does happen against the team who's number one in the conference and would be the team to represent the league and make them money in the college football playoff, it just makes for kind of a, a an interesting conspiracy, so to speak. So I, I don't know. You know, and I don't think all of that was going through their heads at that moment. But I do think it's just a matter of such a big moment in the game, in a game that did involve Oklahoma, which certainly means to them national audience, everybody's watching, and and maybe you just don't want to be that person to make that call to blow that whistle. Uh, but no, and I mean, I don't think they're thinking about conference dollars. At that time, but you know, the, the main thing is, is um, most people feel now, people that uh, you know know the game of football, that it should have been blown, and and we definitely would have had the ball with a fresh set of downs and what a couple of minutes, and you know, a great opportunity, and the fact that we went down the field at such great ease previously makes all of us optimistic that we could have got it done again. We don't know that, but uh, I think that's how we feel, uh, given the fact that Jason Bean and Kwame Lasser had such an easy time of it previous. So Devin Neal was named uh, Big 12 Co-Offensive Player of the Week, and he had 100 yards rushing, a couple touchdowns in the game. Um, how, how much improvement, maybe this goes back in line with the conversation we were just talking about a few minutes ago with the offensive line and how much they've improved this season so I'm sure a big part of that as well but how much improvement have you seen from Devin Neal specifically from where he was in in week one when he sparingly played to to now what he's doing on the field I think his confidence is greater his pad level is lower um, and and he's seeing things better he's probably less tense less nervous so he has definitely improved but as you said the offensive line has a lot to do with that and the offensive line and how they're playing gets him more confidence. But I also want to throw in there the tight ends, because I've been kind of tough on the tight ends and H-backs in their blocking, and they had what I feel was uh, by far their best game blocking. So um, it it, it is a cumulative effort, but uh, so proud of him. Of course, on Lawrence High Lion and and his contribution and uh, excitement about the future of him being there we look forward to many more occasions when he can receive that honor. Well, you can hear David on the call this upcoming Saturday. KU taking on Oklahoma State, 6 o'clock right here on KLWN. Pre-game starts at 4.30. And 
I don't know what the expectations are. I haven't seen a spread for the game, but certainly you're just hoping if you can have anything close to what you showed on Saturday, continue to show that fight and competitiveness. I think that would be a success against uh, a tough Oklahoma State team who's got a really good defense coming off a tough loss, and they're going to be uh, pretty angry coming into that game. There's no question about that, but we're going to show up. And, you know, I think the key stat was probably third down. You know, we were, what, about 80% on third down. At least we were late in the game. And uh, the reason why we're that, we, we had more success on first and second down. Uh, we did a great job with hard counts. And those hard counts that got us the uh, uh, the five-yard penalties took a lot of discipline by our offensive line to hang in there. So that's all part of it, but that helped us achieve more makeable third downs. He is David Lawrence, color analyst for KU Football. David, thank you so much for the time, and uh, hopefully some more excitement this upcoming Saturday. Always a pleasure, Derek. Great to be on with you. All right, that was David Lawrence joining us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. One hour down, two to go. Tough getting out of bed this morning after your weekend-long bender? Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Instead of focusing on Monday, it's time to rehash the glory days of the weekend that was, right now, on Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson. When you come in on Monday and you're not feeling real well, does anyone ever say to you, sounds like someone has a case of the Mondays? No. No, man. All right, it's your Monday. Time for Case of the Mondays here on Rock Shock Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson, 4 o'clock hour. David Lesky is going to join us coming up in about 20 minutes from right now. And one of the things we'll talk to David about is the World Series, which is going on starting tomorrow night. The Braves head back to the World Series for the first time since 1999. They're playing the Houston Astros, who were just in it a few years ago. Five straight ALCS appearances for Houston to get here. Atlanta, a team who has kind of struggled to get over the hump. Last year, they were so close. They are up 3-1 to one on the Dodgers, and then they ended up losing that series in Atlanta fashion, blowing a big lead. The fact that they got back here without Ronald Acuna is pretty incredible because that's one of the top five players in the MLB. I think it's a very interesting discussion what that means from a roster makeup. But also, like, this was an 88-win regular season team. They would have been better with Ronald Acuna. It's just very interesting that it all happens when it does without your best player. But it's not like football where when you're missing your quarterback, you don't know what to do. Or in the NBA, if your star player's out, you're not going to win. It's just it's very different, and it's just very interesting. It's going to be funny, though, because Rob Manfred is going to have to give the trophy either to the Braves, who he took the All-Star game away from, or the Astros, who he punished. Either way, he is getting booed so hard after he gives out the World Series trophy. And I don't know, most MLB fans don't like Rob Manfred anyway, so quite honestly, I'm not sure there would be many places where he wouldn't get booed. I think he got booed by the Dodgers last year. Again, he's just not a very likable commissioner he isn't very good at his job and he's kind of i don't know he just sucks but he's definitely going to get booed very hard from either fan base and it should be a really good world series you're talking about two teams that have built up these homegrown stars on the infield you think of carlos correa jose altuve 
Alex Bregman for the Astros. You think Ozzy Albies, Freddie Freeman, Austin Riley for the Braves. It, it's tough for the Astros, though, because Lance McCullers is going to be out for the series. He's one of their best pitchers. They're a little thinner there, whereas the Braves, you got Charlie Morton, Max Freed. That's a really good one-two for this team. Ian Anderson's been really good in the playoffs. I kind of like the Braves to win the World Series. I'll say the Braves in six. That'll be my official pick. Coming into the postseason, I had Dodgers-Astros in the World Series. Dodgers winning, so I'll go with the Braves here. Uh, Keisha, speaking of things that get booed a lot, Keisha has tiebreakers in place for their seedings, and after Friday, the city showdown occurred. Lawrence High defeating Free State. Both teams ending up 6-2. and two. The tiebreaker system is an absolute mess. And this is what ended up happening in the Kansas Class 6A state playoffs. Lawrence High is the 6th seed. Free State is the 5th seed. Both teams are 6-2. and two. Lawrence High beat Free State, but they're seeded lower. And honestly, if, if you're a Lawrence High person, you're actually probably loving this because if you get the 5th seed, Standing there in round three is the likely one seed, which is Derby. So by getting the sixth seed, you would get an extra round of avoiding them. So it actually works out okay. And I don't think really they're up in arms about it. Um, I just don't understand the seeding process. So basically what I found through everything, because there is a three-way tie. Free State, Lawrence High, and Dodge City all went six and two. Instead of the fact, because Dodge City has the worst point differential of the three. So instead of just being like, okay, well, Dodge City's last. Now we'll go to head-to-head between the top two since nobody played Dodge City. Now we'll let Lawrence High have the head-to-head. They were just like, no, we're just going to base it off of um, who has the best point differential. And it'll be Free State, even though, again, they lost to Lawrence High. You would think that the point differential thing... Like, if you have two teams right next to each other, even after the point differential thing, then head-to-head would apply. But also, it says, if you go to the Keisha standings, like, the first tiebreaker rule isn't the point differential rule. The first tiebreaker rule is the head-to-head rule. I guess it gets thrown out of the way in a three-team tiebreaker if they haven't all played each other. But that's really stupid because this isn't a situation where Team A beat Team B who beat Team C, but then Team C came around and beat Team A, and it's a circle. It's just Team C didn't play either of them. So whatever happens with Team C, or in this case, Dodge City, if they're ahead of Lawrence High, then it should go Dodge City, Lawrence High, Free State. If they're behind Lawrence High, then it should go Lawrence High, then either Dodge City and Free State, or Lawrence High, then Free State and Dodge City. That is so dumb that that does not apply. And beyond that, it also makes no sense with that same notion you have two through four in the standings. So the two seed in the West is Manhattan. The three seeds, Junction City. The four seed is Washburn Rural. All teams have a seven and one record. They all played each other and they all gave each other their loss, right? Manhattan beat, um, I want to say, Washburn Rural. I think Manhattan beat Junction City who beat Washburn Rural who beat Manhattan. So you get into a point where you have the head-to-heads all over. And that makes sense. You can't apply head-to-head. So what they do is they they go to point differential, which if you're going by point differential, you would sort the three teams. Manhattan had the best point differential. Washburn Rural had the second best point differential. And uh, Junction City had the third best point differential. So you would think 
it would be Manhattan as the two seed, Washburn Rural as the three seed, Junction City as the four seed. Wrong! Instead of just basing it all on that, they decided to say, well, the first tiebreaker will go on point differential once we pick a team, which was Manhattan, then we'll go to head-to-head. So then they picked Junction City over Washburn Rural. That makes zero sense. If you're going to give credit to Junction City for winning head-to-head over Washburn Rural to give them a higher seed, then why? You just shouldn't give them the credit because you're throwing that out to begin with because all three teams that are tied beat each other. That makes no sense. It is a very, very stupid way of doing things. It's not the first time that somebody has complained about Keisha some way that they've done things. And they don't even care. They they don't. They'll never respond to anything. They'll never, you know, people complain and they'll just let it go by and they'll just be like, oh, whatever. That's just Keisha. They suck in certain regards and it is what it is. But very, very weird how the seeding is done. Okay. Uh, some football blunders that occurred to get into case of the Mondays. The first one from Friday night. Colorado State trailed Utah State 26-17. to There were five minutes left in the game. Colorado State goes down. They get a touchdown with three minutes left. So they're trying to pull off this this crazy comeback late in the game. It's 26-24 now. They make a stop. They get the ball back with 44 seconds. They're throwing 15-yard line. In three plays, they've moved down to the Utah State 39-yard line. So, again, the crazy comeback. It's on the way right now. They get to third down from from the uh, Utah State 39-yard line. 18 seconds left. And they complete a 15-yard pass to the Utah State 24 with 11 seconds, no timeouts. But remember, clock stops in college football for the first down chain gang to reset. So with 11 seconds, 15 yards past the line of scrimmage, you have plenty of time to go up there, spike the football, maybe even run another play, but at the very least spike the football and then kick a field goal. Well, instead of spiking the football, the field goal team runs onto the field with 11 seconds left, and it's first and 10. And so while half the offense doesn't realize it, you still have half the guys on the field thinking, hey, we're going to go spike it. The kicking unit is on the field, and they have to run off late. They're scrambling. The guys who think they were going to spike the ball are running off late. The field goal kicking unit is still kind of quickly getting on there. The field goal kicker is like scrambling to get set and is barely getting set by the time they snap the ball. It's super disorganized. Players are scrambling. They snap it with eight seconds left and a rushed kick doesn't work. What do you know? The kicker misses it wide left. Steve Adazio, who's a former Boston College head coach, now the Colorado State head coach. This is his response after the game. All we wanted to do was spike the ball, but we had to have the field, the fast field goal team ready. And he goes on to say, the guys took off onto the field, the fast field goal team. They weren't sent, but they went. And it created that confusion at the end, which is just a shame. Nobody sent them onto the field. They just ran and went. They could have spiked the ball and settled into a field goal, not rushed. The kicker wouldn't have felt rushed. I don't know. He still might have missed it. Would have felt a lot better about your chances. It's also interesting because a lot of times, like, plays like that, your immediate thought is, wow, this is a poorly coached team. And, you know, maybe there is a conversation there about, well, if you were a better coached team, then there's not the miscommunication there or there's not this ever happening. But 
nobody told them to go on the field. So you can't really blame the coaching staff, right? That's just kids going rogue. The second weird college football thing from over the weekend for your case of the Mondays, that Illinois-Penn State game, Illinois won 20-18, and big loss for Penn State because it eliminates them from college football playoff discussion with their second loss. Nine overtimes was the game. So a couple years ago, after the LSU-Texas A&M game, which went seven overtimes, college football was like, well, we got to change this up. This is too long of a game. Players are too exhausted. Even though literally everyone watching was like, that game was so awesome. Despite that, we got to change the game up, right? We got we to gotta make this last a little quicker. So they changed up the format to where after the third overtime, or maybe it's starting in the third overtime, it's just two-point conversions. So you end up with a situation where both teams just take over from the three-yard line and you just alternate going for two. And it lasted nine overtimes because neither team could change the tie there. They eventually get it in the ninth overtime, Illinois, on a passing play. Um, I guess... I don't know why we ever had to change to begin with. I get you had a couple games that maybe went a little bit too long, but what is this? And I guess it's not as many plays, so really it's it's less than that. But this was just too much. There was nothing wrong with the original format to begin with in my eyes. I thought it was so cool. If anything, I think what the overtime format, and I think this should be adopted in the NFL and college football, I love the college rules. I just wish they didn't start so close. So instead of starting at the 25-yard line, start them at the 50, or start them at the the 40 or something, to a, a point in the game where you're not automatically in field goal range. It's a little harder with the NFL because kickers are so good and they'll make things from 58 routinely almost. So why not, you know, move it back in college, have them start at the 40-yard line, even the 30, 35, to where it's not an already in field goal range right away. And then for the NFL, start them at the 50-yard line to where basically either way you need a first down to get into field goal range. You need a situation where like it's going to be a lot harder to just keep trading blow for blow with touchdown after touchdown because you're not starting at the 25. But overall, I love the college football overtime. It's so exciting. It's so much fun. It's fair because it gives both teams the ball. Instead of just a coin toss where, oh, only one team gets the ball. If they get a touchdown, it's over. Sorry. Sucks for you. I don't know. All right, that is Case of the Mondays. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. David Lesky of Inside the Crown joins us next. Help preview the World Series. We'll also talk a little Royals with him with the Arizona Fall League and Instructional Leagues going on right now. That on the other side. Well, there haven't been any Royals games of late, but the baseball postseason continues on and the Arizona Fall League going on with some notable Royals players in there. So uh, we're joined now by David Lesky of Inside the Crown to hop on with us. Uh, David, uh, what's been more disappointing? Uh, the fact that we haven't heard any Max Scherzer to the Royals links yet or the Chiefs so far? Uh, probably the Chiefs, <laughs> based on what happened yesterday. Um, I don't remember the last time I've turned off a Chiefs game, honestly. And that was um, 
That was yesterday. I went to, I went to red zone in the fourth one. Once Mahomes got hit, I went to red zone, and that was that. Yeah, that I I don't even know what to think. Maybe uh, Patrick Mahomes is uh, too involved with Royals ownership. Yeah, maybe that's probably what it is. He's <laughs> he's putting too much time into building the twenty twenty two Royals, and so yeah, he's he's got his, he's got his priorities a little out of whack there, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they have they have him scanning through all the uh, different like legal documents in preparation for the uh, possible lockout this off season. Yeah, he's he's actually the representative for the CBA. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, but anyway, with the Royals Arizona Fall League going on, um, Asa Lacy's part of it, along with handfuls of other uh, Royals prospects and, and so forth. Is there anything that's stuck out to you so far about what Asa Lacy and uh, Frank Mozicato, uh, two of the big pitching chips in this farm system, have done so far at the Fall League? Yeah, well, so Mozicato is down in the in the instructs, and he's on the Fall League right now, but he's apparently he's looked really, really good, which... You know, it, it's sort of inter-squad stuff, so it's not necessarily like the, the – the, there's not a huge competition, but that's a time when when you can really work on a lot of things and, and, and fine-tune. It's sort of like the alternate site last season, and I, and I think we've seen that there were at least some positives that came from that for the Royals with some of their hitting development and even some of their pitching development, even though we haven't quite seen the results there. But um, So the reports from him are outstanding, and – yeah, this goes back to the draft. If he if, if he increases the velocity and he's a 92, 94, 95 guy instead of 89, 91, I, I think he I think he has a chance to justify the slot. Um, and and the reports are that his velocity is rising. So there, there's time. He's young. Um, he's really young for a draft pick, actually. So that that that's good news. And as for Lacey in the AFL, um, he's had three starts. One, or the first one was really good. The second one was horrible, <laughs> and the third was really good, which is sort of the MO for Asa Lacey right now as, as a professional. But, you know, I, I think you've got to take, take, take a look at the big picture. And it, two out of three starts with one walk, um, I think he struck out four in that first game in two innings, and I think he struck out five. I don't know if it was yesterday or Saturday. My days are all mixed up. But over the weekend, um, he, he, he looked really good, and a scout I talked to said that when he's been good, which – Again, two out of three. He's looked like filthy, unhittable ace. When he's been bad, it's a mechanics. It's, it's a mechanics and it's a command thing. And so the good news is that's fixable. That's something that you can go in and, and you know, you have to, there's, there's work to do, but it, it's work that can be done, which, you know, it, it, that, that's, a, that's a really encouraging point there. So um, I, I think the Royals have to be happy with what they've gotten from him down there. Um, they probably aren't happy with Sully Matias, who hurt himself trotting after a home run. Um, that's that's not ideal, but uh, yeah, I think with Ace Lacy, they, they've got to be thrilled. Well, so I did see one thing with Ace Lacy that I found very interesting. Um, this is so far in the fall league against right-handed batters, which has been a majority of what he's faced. Eighty-six um, percent mm-hmm. of his first pitches are fastballs. Uh, 96% of his pitches when the batter is ahead in the count are fastballs. I think 73% of his pitches last outing were fastballs. Uh, I mean, is this, do you think, just something instructional? Like, hey, we want to work on your fastball, so we don't really care as much about the results. Just work on it. Or, I don't I don't know. I guess, I guess where I'm going with this is, is this worrisome at all? Because we know that with, like, Brady Singer, for instance, 
there has been a lack of maybe wanting to add or, or throw your other pitches more. Is that worrisome at all there? No, I, well, I mean, it might be. It, it very well could be a problem. But with Asa Lacey, he loves his secondaries. And I, and I think what, what happened in the regular season when he struggled before he had the injury that shut his season down in August, I, I think he was getting away from his fastball because he was going to throw up for strikes, trying to get outs with the slider, with the changeup, with, with anything else. And so I think the Royals have said, and this is just, I haven't heard this, I don't know for sure, but my, my guess is the Royals said, hey, you're throwing fastballs and you're going to learn to command that. Um, because, yeah, I saw that too, that he's throwing a ton of fastballs um, in, in pretty much every situation. And, and I, I have to assume that is something to do with what they wanted him to do, what they wanted to get that fastball command down. And, you know, like, like you said, if it gets hit, it gets hit. And you need to throw that a million times. You see that sometimes in spring training games. Um, and I, the famous one is Zach Greinke, but that was, that was him being Zach Greinke. <laughs> um, but there, there's a lot of situations where a guy's out there saying, I need, I need to work on this pitch. And so I'm going to throw 80%. Occasionally, yeah, you're going to go to that spot. You're going to go to whatever whatever pitch you're not working on because you need to get now because confidence is important too. But I, I think that uh, my guess is that it's mostly about working on that fastball because that's where he had a lot of the command issues. He can get a swing and miss on the slider. That's not a problem. It's, he needs to be able to spot that fastball because it's a good one. It's a really good fastball. It's up for 90s. I mean, it's got some movement on it. He's just got to be able to put it at least near the zone so he can at least get a swing on it. We're talking with David Lesky. You mentioned Zach Granke. He is pitching in the World Series for the Houston Astros, which starts tomorrow. Uh, do you have any thoughts about who's going to win coming into this thing? Uh, Houston, Atlanta, who are you going with? Yeah, so I, I think well, a couple things. One, the World Series favors the home team. It really does. I mean, I, I did the math. Oh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think something like the home team – has won like 18 of the last 26 World Series since since the since the playoffs expanded to include the wild card teams. Um, home team has won game one 17 times. They've won game two 17 times. I mean, it really favors the team that gets that plays at home. And so, with that in mind, as hot as the Braves have been, and as good as they've been, really since the deadline, they have the third best record in baseball since the trade deadline. Um, I you got to give it to the Astros. The thing for me is the key is Luis Garcia, 100% for the Astros, because Framber Valdez, with Lance McCullers out, Framber Valdez is going to be their ace. Um, he might be their ace, even, even with McCullers, but it easily one, two with those two guys. But without McCullers, then it goes to Luis Garcia, who was filthy in game six against the Red Sox. Jose Arcuity, who, gosh, yeah, I think he went one and two-thirds in, in, in the ALCS. Then you've got Zach Grinke, who they didn't even put in their rotation in the ALDS because his stuff has just really dropped. Or Jake Odorizzi, who has had some injury issues, and he didn't look good in the ALCS. I mean, it's not real pretty for them past Luis Garcia if Garcia is as good as he was against the Red Sox in that clincher. So if he he can throw that 90% of that, 85% of that, I think the Astros win maybe in six games, maybe five games. But if Garcia struggles, I it, it's really hard to see the Braves not scoring enough runs to win four games before the Astros do. And so 
I think they fixed Garcia's issues. And, I mean, he threw – he had 12 swings and misses on 13 swings on the cutter in in game six of the ALCS. That's that's disgusting. And the Braves offensively against right-handers with a cutter since the deadline. you got to kind of put that caveat in there because the Braves changed their team so much at that trade deadline. But since July 31st, they've hit like 165 against right-handed cutters. And so if Garcia's cutter is there, poof, they are uh, they're going to be in trouble because they struggle a little bit against lefties without Acuna in there and with uncertainty from Solaire and another former Royal, of course. And, um, you know, they, they, if, they, if Garcia's got his cutter working, that's four out of seven games right there. Even if they win one of them, they've got to somehow win three others. And so – it's it's going to be a tough sled for the Braves, and so I think I'm picking the Astros um, just because I just don't think the matchup favors the Braves very well. If the Astros win, I think it'll be cool for um, Dusty Baker to finally get that yeah. World Series. Uh, I, it's also interesting to me, that, and I, and I know there's the whole background history with the Astros here, but it is a pretty incredible run regardless, and especially these even these last two years, which are after everything that happened. I mean, the NLs or the ALCS five straight years, this is uh, another World Series appearance for them. It's incredible uh, with what they've done so far. And I almost feel like they are basically like, remember when the Cubs, they, they kind of tanked for a while and then they brought all these guys up. It feels like they're the Cubs, but they have done a better job filling the pieces around that core. And whereas the Cubs, like maybe a guy like Ian Happ came up to be the next piece. And he's been very like ice cold or uh, hit or miss, yeah. depending on how it's going. The Astros swing piece instead of Ian Happ was maybe like Kyle Tucker, but then they've just had better pitching or something. I I don't know, but I, I think it just at least deserves credit that even with the Astros' history, like how good they have been, even over these last two years, is pretty incredible. And the fact that they have developed all these guys, it's it's pretty fun to watch. And, and the the deepness of that lineup is is incredible. And Carlos Correa is one of the most clutch hitters in the MLB. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really impressive. And, and I think we talked before the season, maybe it was midseason, I can't remember, about what it would take for the Astros to be legitimate. And the answer is they got to win it after they've been punished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if they can go out and win it, and that's not to say maybe they are still cheating. I don't know. Um, not my job to, to police that. But whether they are or not, if they can go out and win this this year, I mean, especially with a lot of the stuff that's stacked against them as far as, Lance, like I said, Lance McCullers being out. Justin Verlander, we forget about him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's an Astro. <laughs> and he's, he's missed the entire season just near Tommy John. And um, I think I read something that he wanted to come back, but the doctor said, no, you, we, can't. <laughs> we can't risk that. Um, but I mean, they, they've, they're missing out on some pieces and, and yeah, the dusty Baker effect that, you know, I, it's very difficult for me to find a reason to root for the Astros right now. And, and I think dusty Baker is, is that one, that one piece, um, not to mention they are, they are a fun team to watch. If you can get past everything, I mean, they're, they, 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 they play a fun brand of baseball. They're, they're kind of similar to the 2015 role with more power, basically, and and that's it, it's it's a it's a fun team to watch. They're they're they play an exciting brand of baseball, and I think that uh, 
Yeah, it's impressive what they've done. Five straight, like you said, five straight league championship series. It'll be their third World Series in five seasons. Um, it's, a, it's a good team. <laughs> it's, it is. And, um, I mean, maybe the way the Braves got there is a little more impressive because the Astros, I mean, they've got their talent. They've got plenty of talent. But the Braves basically had to rework their outfield entirely. I mean, they, they had Azuna. Um, they tried Christian Patch to start the season. Pache to start the season. He's on the roster. He was on the NLCS roster, I think, but he, uh, he hasn't done anything yet. I mean, they are coming out. I mean, they've had, they've had these big issues. Um, and they went out and they got Jock Peterson, Eddie Rosario, you know, Jorge Soler, uh, I'm missing somebody. Adam Duvall. Um, they they've done quite a bit, and and you know they they here they are. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a a fun matchup that the networks probably didn't want, although people will hate watch the Astros. Um, but I, I think it'll be a good series. I, I think, like I said, I think the Braves have a lot stacked against them, um, but that doesn't mean it won't be a good series. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. And the Braves, what you mentioned, it's it's pretty incredible. The adversity they jumped through to get here, doing this without Ronald Acuna. Do you think there are going to be conversations after the season if the Braves win this thing about because I'm always interested with like when the Royals win the World Series, there's always that off season blueprint, right? Where the maybe the non innovative teams just look at it as like, Oh, that team won the World Series by doing this well. We should copy that. So like the Royals win the World Series and they have this great bullpen. And then the Rockies go out there and they're like, oh, that's how we have to win. And they overspend on guys like Wade Davis and Brian Shaw and stuff like that. Um, Is there going to be something like that? Do you think if the Braves win the World Series without Ronald Acuna, will there be teams who maybe, I don't know, like the Angels with Mike Trout, teams like that who haven't had success but maybe have that like top five, top ten player and just say, hey, look, maybe it is more about the sum of the parts Maybe uh, this is what we should do. We should we should steer into more so being Atlanta, like how, how they have more of this uh, kind of balanced out roster, even though they still do have like stars with Freeman, Albies, and Riley, and so forth. Yeah, I mean it could be, and, and I think that you look at a team like the Rays. They, I mean, they're they're the perfect example of, and they they got Ron, Ron Franco now, but they're the perfect example of. We don't have stars, but we still win every single year. And so I think in some ways that blueprint is already out there, but you know it, it, it's an interesting point that can you win without your superstar? If you if you build around this one player, and you mentioned Trout, and it's not just Trout, it's uh, Bryce Harper, who by the way the Nationals won as soon as he was in Philadelphia. <laughs> I mean, it, and that's not to say that that that's why they won, and they had Juan Soto, who might be the best hitter in the last thirty years. Um, that's not fair. Tony Gwynn was within the last 30 years, in the last 20 years. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that, 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 that's how that, that helps them to win. But I, I think that the more teams do it without their stud, the more without any stud. I mean, look at the Royals in 2015. Who, Lorenzo Cain was their best player. Would you call him a superstar? I wouldn't. I mean, I think he's, he was a very, very good player and he had his, he had a career year in 2015, but that, that was he was the best player, and that's <laughs> you typically don't win with that guy as your best player. Um, I, I think that teams will more and more maybe shy away from investing. And <laughs> the flip side of that is it might give owners another excuse to not put out big contracts and say, "Hey, look, the Braves won without Acuna. What, what do I need to pay player X?" $300 million for if I can go out and trade for role players to do what, what he was doing. And 
it, it's risky <laughs> to, to not to not retain good players is 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 a risky risky gambit there. But yeah, I mean, I think you will see some teams do that. I think you will see some teams look at that and say, well, maybe maybe it would be better to have four guys than one guy. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't know if it's right or wrong, honestly. So it, it it'll be interesting to see how how that shakes out. And you know, the Astros are actually a team that has that decision to make, right? Because they're mm-hmm. Correa is going to be a free agent. They've, they've, they, they're going to lose that guy or resign him. And so, you know, it's, those are the two options. So it, it's, know, it's, it's an interesting question because you're right. Teams do copy and it, it might turn into the, Hey, we don't need stars. We need a lot of good players, not one star. He is David Lusky. You can check out all his work inside the crown. David, thank you so much for the time, man. Of course. All right, that was David Lusky of Inside the Crown joining us. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. About a quarter till five, this is RCST. I'm Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Adam Dravetta out today, so I'll just be doing my NFL Monday overreactions all by myself and first up the worst negotiation of all time sorry for ruining the start of the segment by the way um coming from the chicago bears tampa bay buccaneers game tom brady threw his 600th touchdown of his career most in the nfl mike evans grabbed the football and this had to have been accidentally gave it away to a fan if that's a prank, that's like next level prank. But also, almost like a Robin Hood move if Mike Evans did it on purpose because he would be, you know, basically stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, taking from the box organization, giving to just, you know, a normal fan, although the fan's sitting in the front row, so I doubt he's, you know, not well off for anything. Um, this was in the broadcast. Tracy Wolfson, who was the sideline reporter for the game, here was her report after they gave the football to the fan. And the fan, you know, was approached by the team. Hey, this is a very important football. We want to get it for, I don't know, whether our own archives or the NFL or Tom Brady might want it or something. Uh, What do we have to give you for the football? Here's how it went down. The Tampa Bay official went over and he said, what can I give you? So he gave him another game ball and then promised him some sort of signed jersey. They're going to figure it out after it's all over today, Jim. That's a bad deal. It is. That is a terrible deal. He all he got was another game ball and a signed jersey. I mean, you can get a signed jersey for depending on the player, you know, three hundred bucks. Maybe if it's Tom Brady, it's a five hundred dollars jersey, which that's not cheap. But for the six hundred touchdown ball, it was estimated. I saw Darren Ravel tweet this out for being sold for half a million dollars. $500,000 and he gave it up for a game ball and a signed jersey. And this morning he was on with NFL Network and Andrew Siciliano and they asked, you know, if you could renegotiate, would you? And he said, no. He said, if I could add anything, it would be a round of golf with Tom Brady. Dude, you just gave up a $500,000 item. Ask for a little more. Ask for like season tickets for life I don't know 
money. I think the the Bucks in the aftermath found out that everybody was clowning this guy for getting such a bad negotiation, and they gave him like a thousand dollar gift card to the team store, which again, cool, but it's not a five hundred thousand dollar football. This guy got ripped off. So my Monday overreaction to this. This is the worst thing that happened at an NFL game on Sunday. We had some terrible games. We had blowouts abound. Seemed like every time you you found another game, if you were watching Red Zone or flipped the channel to a different game or looked through the scores, every game was a blowout. There were very close, close games at all. I mean, the Bengals blew out the Ravens. That game, the Buccaneers blew out the Bears. The Titans blew out the Chiefs. You keep going down the line, Cardinals, Texans. It was a terrible day of NFL football, honestly, in terms of competitiveness. But that right there, that was the worst thing that happened on NFL Sunday. My second NFL overreaction. The Patriots are a better 3-4 and four football team than the Kansas City Chiefs. For one, the Patriots, just like the Chiefs, both have had a couple losses where you look to and say, well, if that went the other way, they're in a different situation right now. At the end of the day, you are what your record is in the NFL because there's so many close games, so you can't really bank on that because at the end of the year, like the best teams win the close games, the bad ones don't. Like That's just kind of part of it. But the Patriots are a more complete football team than the Chiefs at 3-4. and four. And while the Patriots don't have the explosive offense and, and the quarterback that the Chiefs do, they have a better offensive line right now. They have a better understanding of how to approach different defenses instead of not ever adjusting, which is what is happening with the Chiefs right now. And the defense is way better for the Patriots than the Chiefs. And if you told me only one of the Patriots or Chiefs is going to make the playoffs from here on out, I'm picking the Patriots at this point. First of all, you have a little bit of an easier schedule. They've played the Jets now twice, but you still get the Dolphins, who are really bad in that division. The Chiefs have a tougher division. You still have the Packers, the Bengals, the Cowboys to play. I think the Patriots are at this moment a better three and four football team than the Chiefs, which the Chiefs we know right now are not playing good football and they have not been a good football team to this point. But to say they're not even, you know, the best three and four football team, the Chiefs have a worse record than the Atlanta Falcons. What is going on? All right, number three, Jamar Chase is already a top five wide receiver in the NFL. I don't even know if this is an overreaction because statistically it definitely applies. He has the most receiving yards through uh, the first, whatever, seven games that they've played that an NFL rookie has ever had. And, you know, stats or records are meant to be broken. Um, certainly, that's a product a little bit of the era you're in when there's more passing and passing yards are easier to come by. This dude is going off, though. Each and every week, you can basically count one or two times that he is going to make a big play. He had the, the like slant route over the middle that he broke for like an 80-yard touchdown. You've seen a ton of plays this year where he just makes a jump ball catch or just beats the guy deep on a deep route. He's a beast. And chalk this one up for next time we want to overreact to something in the preseason because remember when he was struggling to catch the football in the preseason and everybody's making jokes and saying how bad of a pick it was and how they should have taken Penny Sewell. Well, Penny Sewell has not been too hot for the Detroit Lions. They're struggling right now. Jamar Chase is already a top five wide receiver in the NFL, and he just torched the Ravens defense. The Bengals right now are the one seed in the AFC. And the last one, number four for the NFL Monday overreactions, Kyle Pitts is going to be the best tight end in the NFL some point by the year 2023. So that means you have the rest of this season, you have the rest of the next season, and then at some point in the following season after that. Travis Kelsey's getting older, getting to his mid-30s. 
Darren Waller is in his high 20s. George Kittle is constantly getting injured. Kyle Pitts has been going off lately. He was fantastic in that game that they beat the Dolphins in. He already might be a top five tight end in the NFL. He's putting up massive production. And I think by the time in, you know, basically that would be two NFL seasons from now, basically, when some of the current guys are getting a little bit older, I think he's going to be the best tight end in the NFL. And it's it's funny because the Falcons have been kind of clowned like, you're trying to turn this team around and you took a tight end in the top five, not that big of a position of value. Well, if the tight end is playing like a receiver, like he is, or if you're using him as much as the Chiefs use Travis Kelsey, where he was an MVP candidate. But again, they're using him as a receiver. He's basically on fade routes at certain times, or he's the outside receiver on certain formations. Then it's worth it, because at that point, it's basically Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts are both just offensive weapons in the receiving game, and both have been well worth their draft pick. This is Rock Shock Sports Talk. Those are your NFL Monday overreactions on FM 1017 and 1320. KLWN, depending on it.